welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I just had a great conversation with Lucille Graef, which you are going to hear in a moment. We are going to talk about Lucille's work and how she sees the global south where she is located could inform how the global north holds coaching, adult development theory, organizational development work and the like. And we'll talk about heat in terms of our development. How can we create heat moments, heat experiences, which are supportive of the kind of development our clients in groups and individuals might be wanting to go through? And we'll talk about how we can hold the role that we take as a facilitator and a coach where we move out of the heroic and often subtle sense of wanting to be important, wanting to help our clients grow and develop and instead play a role of tending and holding space for what they feel they need and how they want to develop. I think this is an extraordinary conversation. It kind of taps into the theme we've had on the podcast recently where we've been exploring some of the critiques of how the West can hold what the self is and how development occurs and how we over-psychologize experiences and how there is something uh, very pure and potent in our direct experience of things like being around a fire. So uh, we talk about things like circling, adult development theory, theory U, designing heat experiences, how we can train ourselves to be connoisseurs of tending to heat and the ethics of heat. Lucille Graef is proudly African. She's an organizational development practitioner and director at Euphoria Partners, which is a leadership development group working from their base in Cape Town, South Africa. They specialize in a work that supports individual development and systems transformation. And they've also developed a world leading assessment called AIM, the Euphoria Identity Map that integrates Enneagram with adult development and stage measures for individuals and teams and Lucille will train coaches in the use of this tool. She is a big fan of the mythic and the potency of nature and vision fasts and rituals in opening us to the development that wants to naturally occur within us as individuals and teams. Also, if you are not on our mailing list and you want to join our ever-growing community of transformational practitioners, you can head to coachesrising.com, find the sign-up books on the homepage there. And that all being said, let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Lucille Grafe. All right, Lucille, it's so good to be with you. And we've just been checking in a little bit and I'm really excited about our conversation. So how are you, first of all? Thanks, Joel. It's lovely to be here. And um, yeah, I'm just feeling a whole lot of gratitude for you and your generosity of spirit and the beauty with which you convene and bring us as coaches and development practitioners into practitioners into conversation with each other. So excited to be in this conversation with you. Well, thank you. That's very uh, nice of you to say that. And I, uh, you know, as just sharing with you, I'm quite sleep deprived today. So hopefully I can do your praise justice. And um, um, yeah, you know, I like, I think why I'm excited. Well, actually, before we, before we dive in, maybe you could actually just spend a few moments telling us like, where are you and what are you up to in the world? You know, what, what kind of work are you doing? Yeah. Mm. Thanks. Thanks, Joel. So I sit in the global south um, in Africa, the continent of Africa, 
on the very tuning fork of the African continent, the Cape Peninsula. So I'm in Cape Town, South Africa. And I, I'm, I'm, I mention that I'm in the global south because it is something that I think is core to not just my identity, but kind of the work that I do, uh, which is to say, how can we bring the global north and the ideas that proliferate and are very central to the world uh, from that perspective into more of a conversation with the wisdom and work and practices of the global south and of the African continent? Um, I am an organization development practitioner, first and foremost. This is, this is my core identity. Uh, and it's an interesting one. It's an interesting one because I, I was always very interested in what my contribution can be to shaping a more just and equitable world. And at the start of my studies, I thought that would be through politics. <laughs> very quickly realized that politics is not going to be a way to shape the world in the way that that felt right for me. And so um, moved more into psychology and organizations because there is so much power and so much of resources and so much of how the world works and is organized is around business. And I have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with organizations. It's like there's so much of the neoliberal context that is shaped by business in a way that's unhealthy and there's so much power that can be concentrated in strange ways. And then at the same time, if you want to move into a different relationship, it is sometimes important to move not just outside of that dominant operating pattern, but through it. So that's part of the work that I do. I'm part of a wonderful group of uh, practitioners here in South Africa and spreading into the rest of the globe, Aphoria Partners. And we basically do two things. The first is we do leadership development work with uh, a kind of adult development frame um, that's very dominant uh, to say how do we create and support individual leader, but also more, more importantly, systemic shifts. And the second part is to build some tools that are practical uh, around that. So building assessments around diversity and inclusion, um, adult development, and bringing adult development in the Enneagram into conversation with each other. So that's part of the work that we do. I do a lot of coach training um, in these kind of methodologies and ways uh, once they have become coaches, supporting that, and then also supervising uh, coaches in their practice. On the other part of my world, I do a lot of land-based work. So more eco-psychology would probably be one way of thinking about it. I like to think about it more as working with the anima and the mythic and taking people onto the land for rituals and rites of passage. Uh, and that feeds into the rest of the work because that is a developmental process in and of itself. So there's already so many questions bubbling away from your intro there. Um, we're going to talk about, I think one of the things we'll focus a lot on today is this idea of like a, a heat uh, container or encounter that may be developmental and I know you've been thinking about that a lot, and I'm excited to explore that. But before we dive into that, um, could you say, you said like, you know, how can we bring the global south and the north into uh, dialogue together, into exchange together? Um, could you say what the the big possibility you see is there? And just to say a bit more about that, you know, of course, there's been all kinds of conversations recently. I mean, on our podcast, a lot around 
adult development theory and is it is it coming out of this european american worldview how does that view what the self is what does it uh, marginalize in terms of other worldviews how might it need to adapt but you know also in general that conversation around yeah like the the, the coaching industry and just in the west are how we these sort of ideas we've imbibed on what the self is from Descartes and other people. Um, and, and you've already mentioned, you know, like the mythic and ritual being in, being in nature. Um, could, could you, yeah. So I'm just curious if that fits in with all of this sense of how you see the South and the North coming together. What, the, what the big opportunity is there? Yeah. I think, one of the big opportunities that um, is here is firstly the balance in conversation between the individual and the community. So I think there's so much of the global North's worldview that's deeply focused on individual and individuation and individual excellence and individual wellness. And part of the global South um, has moved with that, but part of the global South still has a deep relationship with communal well-being and communal unfolding and community. And so North and South in some ways can be a representation of the conversation between the individual and the community, which we, which we need. In the same way that so much of coaching practice in, in the global North is deeply psychologized and it's part of the lingo that we get in coach training and, and so much of the the literature and the theories and the, the wonderful galaxy brains that are thinking around these things. Um, it's becoming more and more psychologized where I think the global South still has roots in the mythic. And I don't want to mm, idealize part of this, um, but I do think that that's part of the gift that the South can bring is to just challenge some of those dominant norms. And, Wonderful people like Bayo Komilafe is doing some of that conversation and bringing that conversation into the Western paradigm. But we need many bridges. And I'd be very interested in what happens for practitioners and thinkers in the global north through the lived experience of the lands of the south, not just our conversations that we start around the ways in which our cultures are working and alive, but also what happens when we go onto the land. <laughs> when we go onto the land and foreign land and feel what the roots are speaking, um, how the roots of the land are speaking to us and what that thing does to our practice. Yeah. Do, could you say more about some of the issues you might have with things becoming psychologized? Because, uh, you know, I get on the one hand that could have a good, good side to it perhaps, but it might, may, maybe there's just the way you said it sounded like, yeah, there could be, could be downsides to that where we where we take take something and then it's become psychologized and i don't know if even you see that happening with adult development theory itself you know like development is something we've always done as a species um without you know maybe needing to have a whole theory and map about it um and so yeah and 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 i'm also curious to so bookmark this like do you find people resonate with adult development theory in the global South in the same way because of this communal mm. element, you know, which I think is so vital and needs to come back or be reclaimed in, in the, the North too. 
So yeah, but yeah, yeah. this that idea of psychologize, what is that? And yeah. mm. so I think one of the things is that almost every experience that we have is more and more being seen through a psychological lens. What is this doing to my attachment? How, you know, is um how is this helping me to strive and develop and grow? But and, and our language is just full of psychological terminology. And even the way in which we think about things like what we are going to speak about, heat experiences, which comes from heat comes from fire, right? So we have a psychological understanding of fire. And that's great. But sometimes our archetypal and psychological ways of thinking about something like fire takes us away from something mythical um, that relates to almost the anima of life that I can only experience, only experience when I am directly present with fire. There are some things that only fire can do. And the moment I start putting it into my psychological language, is this helping me process my past childhood trauma? I'm taking away what the fire is doing, which is the fire is wanting me to sit next to it and stare into it. Yeah? Or the fire is wanting to burn away part of what's um, present. In this moment, uh, the fire wants to be a focal point for a larger communal conversation. And we don't have to turn that into something that has to do with attachment theory and adult development stages and all of those things. So that's the one piece. The other thing around how adult development theory resonates um, in, you know, I can speak more from an African perspective, um, not so much you know, for, from, for example, a South American perspective, there have always been ways of marking and working with transition points. Yeah? And they've often been ritual-based and in, in the space of rites of passage. And part of what I think we miss in the, the Northern Hemisphere way of working with this is we've, we've stripped out the rites of passage that help us celebrate and let go um, and transition in a way that marks this for the community around us as well. It's all this inner psychological work. And then we can announce, you know, I feel that I've shifted my frame and my perspective. But in a communal space, there would be a rite of passage that marked that. And so that's a way of also then entrenching that shift in the communal life in a way that's very different to just my individualized experience. That's one of the things that comes up. I think the other thing is that the more we bring in some of the thought leaders and the thinking that's incredibly powerful that informs things like adult development theory, also from a Southern perspective, we can, we can enrich how it speaks to different people. So um, in our work, for example, we've, bring in a, we've brought in a lot of Africana existentialism, the work of Fanon, the work of Steve Biko around understanding things like agency and oppression and how to step towards freedom and responsibility, which that part of the conversation is as important as the conversation that, for example, comes from a more Descartian point of view. Um. Really fascinating. It seems to me like there's an obvious connection between how, uh, you know, our psychologizing of experience, which takes us away from 
the mythic and even and, and as i hear you describe it it takes us out of a kind of intimate immersion with experience into maybe a more uh you know like psychology you know psychologizing in the moment i'm now adding a layer of interpretation or or meaning making over the direct visceral experience of being with fire you know and then and then yeah you know um i i link that with then yeah if you you could be in a coaching session and uh be talking about your own development and frames of mind and all of this or you could go through a rite of passage which you might not discuss that stuff at all and you're actually still you know maybe it's even more potent <laughs> you know so um and may, so i'm curious if you see that link and you know does this connect with you know some something like uh what dave snowden he's my like favorite current kind of voice to bring in i've heard him say like we don't always need to make everything um into our conscious awareness you know um as when we're in some kind of transformation transformation can happen without us being aware of it so yes absolutely and the psychological framework operates through the mind so i think part of how in the coaching community i'm seeing the narrative shift is towards more of a conversation around embodiment but if we go into embodiment through the mind i'm still trying to make sense of okay this practice does this thing for my nervous system i'm still like interpreting through the mind and some things just need i need to give myself to them you know i i it, it's not through the mind it's it's through a full embodied visceral showing up to this moment and what it has to offer um without then getting the mind to run its interference or its interpretation or its rationalization in some kind of way i'm just thinking of my mum here who is, you know doesn't like we don't she doesn't think about this you know her own psychology that much. maybe that's a bit unfair but you know like she's not on a an in, a quest of individuation consciously in the way that i've been but i'm just thinking about the way she tends to her garden and that sensibility that that brings she 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 me she like embodies this deep kind of i think it was george washington carver who also you know he, he ended up creating all these inventions uh but he had this kind of phrase of like and i can't remember it but if you if you if you if you love something fully it will reveal its its depth to you it will reveal its yeah. true nature to you and I yeah. see that I see my mom doing that with her her flowers and plants in her garden is just, you know, it's it's just incredible. And 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 George George Washington Carver did that with his own plants, and he ended up, you know, he came up with some ridiculous amount of patents from peanuts, you know, but he had a certain <laughs> sensibility. So you know, maybe that's an example of like, yeah, there's a, there's a certain way of being that people are training there that we might denigrate even or say, oh, that's not as developed as, um, you know, some sophisticated complexity of thinking. I'm curious, like, what you make of that. And how do you bring this then into your work? You know, like, uh, yeah, your coaching or the training you do like this. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I think I agree with you completely. And part of how we're trying to find language for this, I think, is through the language of saying, you know, let's not strive, let's not be so instrumental in this pursuit of adult development in some kind of way. Sometimes we need to settle into ourselves for it to 
unfold or emerge in a natural way. And then we have some people who have not gone on this conscious mind journey in pursuit of development that have deep, deep practices that are often fairly simple practices and can easily be put into an early stage box. Oh, you know, that's just a conforming mindset in some kind of way um, that, that doesn't really honor the deep wisdom that comes from that. And, you know, there are lots of wise sayings that come from different traditions, you know, before enlightenment, chopping wood, after enlightenment, chopping wood. Sometimes we just need to chop wood. It's not the pursuit of enlightenment. It's the chopping of the wood that is it in some way. Um, yeah. And there's this beauty that comes from that, that, um, that sometimes I long for when I get wrapped up in my own very complex processes around what am I doing? Where are we going around this? I mean, it, it, it does seem to be, uh, you know, I'm just thinking of Benita Roy, who, you know, has been saying recently that, you know, we've, we've had like this whole, I don't know how many hundreds of years of developing complexity of mind, you know, if this, then that, you know, that kind of like, and then we kind of abstract out and, you know, is it that we need to get even more sophisticated in that to solve the world's challenges? Uh, I think she's saying maybe not, you know, I don't know if that's going to be the thing that, so she's proposing a certain, you know, sensibility or way of being, which is quite different, which is, I think maybe pointing in the direction you're talking about, you know, a kind of um, deepening intimacy and synesthesia with experience, you know, like being in the kind of, um, you know, the, the being being in, in kind of some deep intimacy with fire in the way that you're talking about, um, maybe not even necessarily needing to make that a conscious experience. And so um, let, let me ask one more thing and then we can talk about heat. Yeah. But you, you, so I think this relates when we were checking in, you said, oh, um, yeah, you know, things get psychologized, even something like circling for you, which I know some people in the developmental community are now picking up on. For me, that was a practice which I, you know, after a few years of getting into Wilbur and stuff and then getting frustrated about, yeah, but what's the interior of all this stuff? Uh, circling was like one of those modalities that, which, you know, just lit me up and, um, and so, and you said, oh yeah, and that's a, that, that could be a psychologizing of an ancient practice of sitting around the fire. Could you say more about that? Yeah, I think circling in and of itself is a beautiful modality, right? So, um, I've seen it be incredibly helpful for individuals and also bring a sense of really encountering myself through being listened to in a different way than I would normally in conversations. And that's, I think, why there's such a movement into circling from our developmental community at this point in time. Let's think back, though, in kind of an intercultural context around where our modern applications of this comes from. And part of communal life is built around the idea of being in circle and convening in a circle in different ways, whether it's around a cooking fire, whether it's around the fire to tell stories together, um, whether it's around the fire to just have communion with each other. 
and often at the end of the day in some kind of way to come into that space. And in that space, if we're sitting around the fire, part of what the fire does is it changes the nature of the listening and it changes the nature of sharing. And it allows for a greater container to allow the individual to know themselves through the community. And in that way, you know, I think we're trying to, to build processes and systems that fill the gap that's actually deeply entrenched in our genetic experience of being human for thousands and thousands of years before the era of the mind. We were doing things like that and it held a specific space. And because we've lost some of that space in how we've built our world at this point in time, we need to now develop methodologies to get it back. Boom. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So on the one hand, it could be that, yeah, it's a great practice, you know, it's, it's not surprising. It's a practice which is moving around the world and people love it because it's, it's, you know, it's helping them tap into something and, you know, uh, yeah, let's not get carried away. Uh, we have been doing these kinds of things. And I think what you're pointing to is something I've been grappling with, which is like, we can look at something like sitting around a fire from our kind of Western mindset, you know, and then it seems like, oh yeah, that's just sitting around a fire, you know, like, and then, you know, you might feel some good vibes from the fire and, you know, everybody's kind of talking and, but, but I think it's also, I think you're pointing to a kind of different what like this communal mindset or this, 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 you know, like animist or like, you know, Taoist, kind of mind where, yeah, it's not just sitting around the fire and, and feeling like cozy and stuff. It's like, no, there's a kind of deep intimacy with this fire and it, it's, it's, it's like evoking, it's a evo it, it, it's, it's real deeply evoking who you are in that moment, you know, and mm. like you said, what you listen to, does that, does that fit? That fits very well. And it's evoking community. That's the core thing. You know, it's, it's a source that convenes. And so it's, it's the individual and the community both. And so can I ask you then um, uh, what you mean by a heat experience? Like this is something I was excited to ask you about. I know you've been thinking about it a bit more. Maybe we could talk about this in context of development and mm -hmm. some of the other things we've used to set up this part of our conversation. Yeah. So I guess the first thing to say is, when I first encountered that terminology used inside the developmental frame was when I was working through some of Nick Petrie's beautiful white papers around what is vertical development many, many years ago. And there, his frame is like, there are three, three conditions for vertical development or stage change. There's the heat experience, there's um, colliding perspectives and elevated sense-making as his three elements. And so, I was like, curious, so what are these heat experiences? And in my community, a lot of people have said, okay, I love Nick's work. What does this mean? What is a heat experience? And that's where I started kind of trying to decode what some of that means in the field of praxis, you know, theory and, and practice meeting. And, and a heat experience for me is either a naturally occurring contextual um, experience either in my outer or inner world where 
there is challenge, there is discomfort, there's a, a dislocation of the status quo. Things are disrupted, things are changing. Now, if it's naturally occurring, that could be through some massive events in the world around us. You know, if, we're, if we were living in Turkey at this point in time, post the earthquake or Syria, there's a lot of heat there. Things have been disrupted in a massive, like, this is actually an earthquake, but it's like a firestorm. Nothing's the same in some of those areas. So there's a lot of heat. It could be much more personal. It could be that I'm dealing with illness or I'm falling out of love with my job and, you know, I'm frustrated and it's not working. So there's naturally occurring heat. Then there's the heat that we choose. And heat that we choose is I want to do circling. Yeah. Don't know what this is. I'm a little bit nervous. I'm leaning into this practice. Oh, my word. What's this going to be? I'm out of my normal way of relating and talking about things and being invited into a different conversation. So that could be I'm leaning into something or even I am signing up for coaching. I'm doing this specific development program. I'm going on a constellations workshop. There we go. So I'm choosing certain heat experiences. Um, and then there's this process around what happens when people that are developmental practitioners like ourselves, when we introduce heat into a conversation or into a system. So it's not naturally there because we have maybe a developmental mandate. Hopefully we have a mandate and not just a developmental paradigm, which says I'm doing this to everyone I'm working with. But if I have a developmental mandate, I might say, okay, there's not enough heat in the system. We need to get some heat into the system so that there can be challenge and disruption in some kind of way so that we can maybe at the end of this expand, grow, shift how we're thinking about this. So that's how I think about heat experiences. Um, the, the important thing for me is that there's something around the ethics of fire, if you want to call it that. And the ethics of fire has to do with the role as a developmental practitioner. I give myself the permission I give myself to introduce heat into a system. And that's something that I don't think we talk about enough. Um, that's where we start doing things to people that could be contextually completely inappropriate that could be traumatizing even and I think we're becoming more sensitive and trauma informed in our work and that has its all own fallout that could lead to us being so cautious that you know we almost want to kill any heat that exists because it might traumatize but for me I think the traumatizing element has to do with the ethics around fire not fire itself um, so if we see our roles as being that of offering invitations into heat, that's very different to saying everyone in this team, and this is stories I've encountered from people, everyone in this team are going to go on this retreat and literally we are going to walk over coals as an, as an extreme example. But you don't get a choice. If you want to be a good team member, you're doing this thing. And that's a very different ethic around that kind of heat experience. Don't know what that brings up for you, Joel. I've said quite a yeah. lot there. Yeah, no, I think I think that's fantastic that 
I mean, you know, I remember getting called out early on in my coaching practice by a mentor of mine, Doug Silsby, who he was like, yeah, you know, you've got a bias towards depth. And, and so you're just like, you want to go deep with people, but yeah, actually um, there's a certain permission that's needed. Is there, is there an invitation that you can make into depth rather than, you know, just taking people in there. So I love, I love that you name the ethics of this and I want to talk about the contextual in a moment, but could you, could you give me some examples of, uh, you know, how uh, we might make in invitations into heat with groups or individuals, what kind of things can bring mm. more heat? Mm. So I think what can bring more heat is very contextually specific because heat for one mm. person is not heat for another. So if we start from that premise, then all the examples that I might give now need to be read inside context rather than as a universal formula for heat, because that's, that would not be appropriate. But to maybe give you a couple of examples um, would be, and, and because I love working with community and individual, group and individual, um, I think it's important to note that interplay between them uh, and what we see just from systems change as an aside is that when you have group leadership development programs, for example, that strip out the individual piece of processing, so there's no coaching involved, you have less of a chance to sustainably shift a system than if that individual component is there. And I think it's similar when we only work individual, only work in the one-on-one -on -one space, and there's no space for group processing, where what's going on with me and between me and my coach does not come back into the system, there's also less of a chance that things will stick and endure. And so for me, the conversation is between those two when we think of the, the practical examples. When, when I think of the, the design invitation that I give myself, I'm deeply informed by um, Theory U and Otto Schama's work around taking people through the process of seeing my seeing, disrupting that, falling into a new way of exploring things and then emerging. So I think that's part of our problems with stage theory as well as we think it's just like that, but actually we have to go in and disrupt before the new can emerge. So it's more of that you-based process. And theory you is a deeply collective and individual process together as well. So if we're looking at examples at the start of a process, which Otto Sharma would call sensing opportunities. Their heat experiences are all about helping me see how narrow my frames are, helping me get exposure to parts of the world that I'm cut off with, cut, cut off from that are actually maybe contextually relevant to my system. And that can invite some new information in and bring the mirror up close and personal. So I'll give you some examples from women's leadership development, which is something that I work in a lot and, you know, I'm with my colleagues incredibly um, inspired around bringing inclusive conversations into the workplace. So from women's leadership at the start of a process, uh, one of the things we've done is to take women to uh, a museum that is hosted inside what used to be a very significant political prison for female prisoners in the apartheid era in South Africa. And to 
be in conversation with former people that were incarcerated inside that woman's prison. Now, there's so many layers to that metaphor um, in and of itself, but just being in the space of a prison specifically for women, hearing the stories of women defying authority inside it, and also the traumas that they had to go, go through there helps me see my seeing and maybe see my system where I may have frames around how oh, this is stifling, stifling me and the system is in some way holding me back in a different way. So that would be one, one small experience um, with a, a group that we recently closed off with. We worked with them for two years. One of the first things we did is we took a group of Kosa women who come from a culture where my relationship with the ocean is deeply political and you will not find me moving towards opportunities to swim and be in the ocean unless it's for very specific ritual purposes. Um, and we took them surfing. And there's nothing necessarily psychological about this, but this is just in a safe way. How can we immerse you in the ocean? And what becomes visible to me when I do that? Now, that is not going to be a heat experience for someone who's grown up on the California coastline, who has been part of surfing culture from a very early age, right? That's not a heat experience for them. That's just run of the mill. But if you look at what that represents for that group, that's a very different thing. Um, we've done some work where you get a group of very tough people from the mining sector and you teach them flower arrangement. And, you know, <laughs> as we've come to learn from that piece of work, many, many benefits that come from teaching flower arrangement because you take that home and it does often lead to benefits, <laughs> which that was not the intention at home when you bring flowers to your wife. Um, as an example of from the mine, you know, that you've arranged yourself. Uh, but that's really different. And then all of a sudden, I'm thinking about the stories I have around masculinity and what aesthetics mean. And this is a, a, an environment which is very devoid of aesthetics in many kind of ways. So those can be some very practical ways of thinking of heat experiences. And then there are other kinds of heat experiences that have to do with processing things in a particular way, being challenged around my frames of seeing and being that we know maybe in more of the ways in which we've been trained. The core question is, is this helping me see my seeing? Is it challenging me? Is it disrupting me? Um, and is it disrupting me sufficiently, but not so much that I need to shut down from that again? So. That's, that's part of what one can do. I think there's some very common sense ways in which people do this. If you look at something like Undercover Boss, that's an extreme heat experience that a lot of people can just lean into by choice. You know, I'm a government official in the Department of Health. I'm going to go and queue at my own government clinics for a whole day. And I'm going to just sit and be in conversation with people there and see what it feels like in my body and then go back to making policy decisions and budget decisions and implementing things. But those are examples of heat experiences that are often appropriate at the start of a longer journey that may have many different 
heat experiences that we're more familiar with in a workshop setting or in a coaching in environment. That sensory sensing part is incredibly important. Because that's what stands out to me about what you're saying. You know, what you're not saying is, yeah, we get them in a coaching room by themselves and we ask them, you know, what's your biggest challenge right now? Now, you, by the way, you might be doing that. I don't know. You only just shared. And, and it might be that, that the one-on-one coaching can come in later on. But what strikes me about what you're sharing here is, yeah, the sensory experience, the sensory nature of it. Yeah, it's about place, you know, being in the prison, being in the ocean, being with the flowers. It's about these, you know, the, it's about being in relationship with the, the ocean or with the the prison or the flowers and 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 that that relationship is a tu- is is attuned in a way that evokes a certain experience and that how i mean how do you um go about that i mean first of all i'm fascinated to know what happened with those miners you know like w- did you encounter i mean i'm fascinated to know what happened with all of them like so maybe that's there's like these principles we can extol from it like did the miners kind of um you know will say what the hell are we doing what's the point in this you know i mean really you expect this to have some impact on me How, how how do you i guess my question is like what happens to people when you put them in this experience what journey do they go through and how do you know how do you decide as a facilitator where to put them? You know, mm. like, does that, mm. does that emerge out of a dialogue? And yeah. 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 I think first and foremost, it's really important to be contextually informed. So what, what is appropriate and when it is appropriate and how to bring it and how to contextualize it comes from an understanding of the context and being in relationship with that context I think that's where so much of adult development theory can become, and I work with the Enneagram quite a lot of as well, it can become so acontextual. And all of a sudden we go, this is the framework. We're moving you from this stage to this stage, or, you know, this is your Enneagram style. This is exactly what it means. This is, you know, this is how you work with it. This is the developmental pathway. And we start becoming devoid, acontextual, devoid of context in our work. And it's cut off from life, huh? Yeah, it's kind of from simplified. Life. Yeah, exactly. So, in order for if if I'm going to be introducing heat into the system, the first thing is I need to be in in relationship with that context, and I need to understand it. I can't just waltz in on the first day and go, "Okay, here's your heat that you've ordered." Um, I think the second thing is that the way in which I bring heat needs to be, as we said, from an ethical perspective, invitational. So here's an invitation. Play with it and then see, see what comes for you from this. I can't tell you what this means. I can't tell you that through flower arrangement, you are going to get in touch with your emotional intelligence, that that is, that is the straight line of what this means. You know, it's like, let's be playful and then let's, Let's talk about the different ways in in which this spoke to me or didn't speak to me, which is fine. It's fine that this meant nothing to you. At least you played with it. So it's the invitational principle is really important from that. The third thing is for me, I really believe in the role of the participant facilitator. So I have to be in the experience with you. So I'm not 
going to stand on the beach while you're going surfing. I'm going to go surfing with you. And so from that, there is something that becomes available to me through my sensory lived experience of this thing and being in the community as a part, as opposed to separate from the community. I have a different role in the community because I'm the convener and the facilitator as well, but I'm in the community with you. I'm not separating myself out from it. So part of what that means then emerges between us. And then it's to understand, there's something around understanding the rhythm of heat Heat is, in, in, in the cosmology, in my own spiritual cosmology, which is informed by some African traditions, you know, heat stands opposite earth. So fire and earth are opposite each other. And then there's water and air, which is maybe another conversation around flow and the breath of life and how those, we're not in that conversation today. But if fire is the disruption, then earth is the grounding, it's the containment, it's the processing piece of that. And so if I bring fire and I'm just fire hosing people, you know, all these experiences, and there's no space to ground and to become present to what this means and to process and to slow down and to earth myself literally around what we've experienced here, then you know, it also, it also becomes a nonsense exercise. It, it becomes something that can easily just be, oh, we're going off for a whole lot of fun new experiences and who knows? Who knows what that means? But actually, maybe it means nothing. Um, I don't even know if I've answered your question at all, but that's oh. kind of where my thoughts went from, um, from your invitation. Do you think that you, you like, are you, um, cause we're talking about the design here, you know, like yeah. we're, we're, we're designing an experience and then we're, we're part of that experience. And what I like about it is that, you know, it's not a prescriptive experience. It's a generative experience. It's like, we, we don't know what will happen, but let's find out. And I'm wondering for you, do you feel that you've honed your capacity in the moment to kind of, you know, sense when you need more heat and when you need more ground, you know, like that's actually something that, you know, I'm thinking of norm therapy, which I've done, which is really good at that. You know, it's like, it's not just about, you know, all right, let's go in and feel this thing and go all the way, you know, it's like, no, we're going to titrate and we're going to attune. And that, that actually is more effective than, than just going all the way in. So yeah, what's that experience like for you? I see you nodding, like Mm. what's happening for you in those moments when you're, you know, you're attuning to more heat, more ground. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I think the first thing is just to say that that attunement is an incredibly important faculty that we all need if we're working in the field of development. Um, Even more than theory, we need the ability to read what the system needs. And I think our nervous systems, our embodied experiences is one of the primary cues, especially if I'm working in community where nervous system activation spreads like wildfire. We're still in fire (laughs) Um, uh, metaphors here. So, you know, there is the embodied practice around what is my body telling me? You know, am I in that space where it's it feels generative or am I seeing and reading and in myself feeling that there's a fight or flight or a, a defensive structure that's 
that's starting to push into the space and how do I meet the defensive structure? Is this the, this is like the second order question inside here. When that defensive response comes up from an individual in a group that says, I, this is stupid, I don't want to do this. Is that the moment where my role is to contain them and say, okay, choose how you want to be with this? Or is this the moment where a little bit more heat is appropriate to say, why don't you try it? Because this is actually the routine defense structure that blocks me over and over and over again and keeps me in that loop of stuckness in a specific way of being and seeing in the world. And then zooming out to the larger frame that goes within what context? Because I might be doing something here that seems quite silly, but I'm doing it inside an organization that's restructuring where there's a huge amount of um, natural occurring heat through the context at this point in time, that this could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. So this is not the time for this. And I think, especially given our larger context at this point in time, where there is so much breaking in the world, whether it's environmental disasters, whether it's um, our relationship with the natural world, whether it's the in inequality and, you know, still the, the tale of COVID and what that means for how we're all structured and, and the larger kind of civilizational patterns around where we are at and what that means. There is a tremendous amount of heat in the system. And so if, I, if I'm aware of that, then I can think of different ways of working with heat as well. It's not always making heat. It's not always lighting the fire. Um, or blowing on the fire to make it bigger. Sometimes I need to tend the fire or bank the fire or in some way, you know, just help through some embodied work, calm the nervous system down so that this experience becomes available for the individual. And that's where the art of coaching, the art of coaching, the art of development comes in. There, I don't think there's a formula, but the more we are inside our systems doing the work, the more our sense and our capability to do that work and do that reading becomes finely tuned. In our organization, in Iphoria, we have a very important principle, which is you never work with a group alone. You never work without a co-facilitator. And that's also, I think, an important thing because we all have times where our radar goes off or we get in some way triggered into the process. And that relationship with someone else that can be, you know, and, and I think the best co-facilitation pairs work together in an alchemical way, not in a mechanical way at all. How we have that way of holding the broader system helps to read it better than just an individual reading. See, I'm coming back to community over and over again, this relationship between self and others. And that for me has been very helpful because then, you know, it's not just a supervision practice around what I'm doing here. Um, it's an in-the-moment governing mechanism, an alignment between us that we're both sensing. And that makes it much easier. Yeah, yeah. It's really powerful. And I'm feeling the 
the not on, so so not only the felt sense of being with one person or a group, you know, and how we can refine ourselves. And you said embodiment, like this is attunement to what's here, um, you know, to like what 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 move or role I might need to play in this moment. You know, like you said, there's a lot of heat in the world right now. Oh, oh is there a lot of heat in this space? Do I need to kind of, you know, play? kind of embrace, you know, make this embracing move where we're just kind of holding what's here, you know, in a way which is kind of caring in some sense, you know, um, or, or do I feel like, no, there's something missing. There's, there's a flatness here in this moment, you know, um, what, what kind of intervention, what kind of question, or even how might I just be in my presence that would invite more intensity and so there's a whole art there in in like refining our, our subtle sensing, which I think, you know, in our conversation, I hear you speaking about also in that, yeah, if we're just in this, you know, complexity of thinking about the situation, it's not that, is it? You know, it's it's not like, oh, I'm now analyzing everything from a developmental perspective and, you know, assessing what's going on. No, it's a it's a different type of sensibility, you know, like I described with my mother and her flowers, you know. Yeah. And so um, but what but what I'm appreciating about what you're sharing, especially is like that on a systemic level, you know, like and the importance of relation, the relational in in this, the community yeah. uh, as as a as a felt experience and one that we can we can attune to on a wider and wider level of how it might be showing up. That that's that inspires the hell out of me as something we can practice. And I'm curious how you resonate with that, and and what um, what what practices have you done, or do you do in your company that help you um, cultivate that sensibility? Yeah, I think I'll speak about our practices in a moment, but first, just from the point of resonance, and maybe continuing to put this into what this means practically. Um, this this way of the communal and the, the systemic way of working with this. Part of the most beautiful ways in which I invite, and this is the design piece, we can invite groups to work with heat is for them to choose their own heat experiences. So once the group is in a developmental explorative mindset is to play with that idea that we as a group know what we need from inside our experience of this system and what we're doing here much better than the external coach or facilitator can know. And so to work into the design, the process of the people in a group choosing their own experiences. So we sometimes, you know, you can call it many things, you know, in one of our designs, we call it lunchtime sessions and each woman in the group, in the women's leadership group, gets the opportunity to invite the rest of her group without the facilitators to share an experience, to convene around whatever it is that they choose, that they feel is important for their individual development, but then in sharing with the group. And if you convene community properly, the wisdom within that group will design beautiful things that you can never dream of. So, in the specific group that I'm thinking of, one of the things that the group convened around by themselves without any prompting was to get a sexologist in to come and speak to them around 
the female sexual experience. Now, that's not something you're going to get sign up from, from you know, some HR exec to come and do as part of the longer term development, but they've chosen it and they invited someone and they had a conversation around it and different ways of processing where someone else might say, I watched this dec- documentary around what's happening to the infrastructure in our part of the world and the way in which it's crumbling and what that means for us 10 years from now. Let's watch that together and then talk about what this means for the strategy of our organization. And those are self-selected things where sometimes I think when we place ourselves in the position of the heroic, well-developed coach, you know, that's later stage, that has all the wisdom, that knows how to design these things for people, that misses the boat. The actual design is to create the space in which the group does this for themselves. So that's one part of the principle. And then when we continue on this theory, you process, you know, on, on the emergent side, when once I've gone through the bottom of the U and I'm through, through that into the world and new ways of seeing and being maybe at a different stage of thinking, if we use developmental language there, is to say, what are, and this is old methodologies that we've been using you know, since before the 80s, the notion of the action learning project. But to frame that in a very different way, this is not some application of something that you got from outside, but this is a way to make, to be the change you want to feel in the system without permission, without a mandate, without a project, just from your own sense of agency and the role and the place that you have in this organization. And to do that in small groups, because it's, too, it's, it's sometimes too much of a push to do that alone. And sometimes I think we, you know, we lose how we think about designing those things into the process, um, which then allows the group to decide for themselves what they do and to collaborate across specialities and try things, even if it's as simple as a set of um, agendaless meetings in a highly bureaucratic organization where that would never, never happen and to track the impact of that on team coherence, whatever it is, something small like that or something much larger, like people from four different parts of government um, deciding that they're going to try and identify unclaimed bodies in the morgue where one of them happens to work without following the channels of where it is in the bureaucratic system, but by collaborating with um, community-based organizations yeah? and finding that that's massively different to what a project that comes from the top would look like, but gives me a sense of my own agency in the world and what I care for and how I can, how I can impact that. I'm just thinking of complexity theory here of how, yeah, that that's, you know, it, it's, sounds like it's going to be a lot more impactful as you're describing it's emerging out of the system itself and the facilitator is part of that system. And so it's emerging out of the, you know, uh, the desires, the, the, the adjacent possibles that people see and feel like they need, you know, and therefore it has traction to it. It's, it's, it's how it's working on that micro level you know, although, you know, these are some really big things we're talking about. Um, and it's, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that. You know, for me, I'm, I'm learning a lot about how then you could 
design a whole ecosystem in a sense or hold space. Maybe designing the ecosystem isn't the right word. Maybe it's like, how do you hold space? What ingredients are needed yeah. for, for that flourishing and emergence to take place? Yeah. Patricia Shaw, who's done a lot of work in the complexity space, calls this intervening in the shadows, which I really love. This is like coming together of, you know, it's not quite an instrumental frame, but it still pushes, it still agitates into the system, and then it holds and it contains. So it's intervening in the shadows, and my role is to make sure that people don't run out of steam and, you know, that there seems, you know, that they feel safe enough and they feel supported. But if the process has worked well, then that's naturally occurring. And so I think we're often, we're designing the wrong thing. We're designing at the wrong level. We think we need to design an activity that unlocks a capability or a competence. <laughs> that's the wrong thing. The question is, what is the transformative process I need to hold so that with maybe some introduction of exercises, with some invitation for those to emerge themselves, we, we can hold a process that is part of the natural rhythm of how systems and humans change. And, and this is the part where I think the, the practices that we have um, are important for ourselves as practitioners. I think the first is that we need to do our own internal work that helps us get our own egos and sense of uh, individual importance as an agent of transformation or a you know, master coach. We absolutely need to work to continuously get that out of the way because I'm a convener. I'm, I'm, I'm not a magician that's going to just make things happen. And my role is very different. And the more my ego comes into play, the more I'm going to interfere with, with the natural rhythm of things and I'm going to become instrumental in that individual event kind of way. And so coaching, supervision, practice, you know, and also debriefing and the practices of working with co-facilitators are therefore very important um, in how we do this kind of work, first and foremost. And, you know, I think there is something about the fire in our own system uh, that's very helpful in this, but not always comfortable, which is like we challenge each other when we see our egos get in the way. Um, and we do that very directly as a group of, of colleagues that work together to say, no, 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 no. Go back to the group. Go back to the context here. Um, yeah. You're making yourself too important in this. And, and I think we need to talk more about this as a coaching community, how, there is something of the desire to be affirmed and to be heroic inside our work that sometimes pushes us to coaching and then keeps us in a certain way of relating to the work um, that can easily become more about us than about our clients and their context. How, how would you invite coaches to be then? And I'm wondering, so... In you know, and in, in, in I I work with individuals more than groups, and the way I'm kind of relating to what you're saying is, um, I used to have a more structural approach to coaching, 
you know, so, okay, this is where we are now. That's where we want to go. And let's chart a path over there. You know, maybe that's not quite the right way to hold it, but let's take on a certain set of practices, take certain actions that will move us in that direction. And now it's much more like, how can I hold space for the unfolding of my client? And so I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to design a new way of being for the client. I'm not going to, um, you know, it, it, in a way, like my role is to cultivate the presence to be able to just hold that space and attune mm-hmm. to what's emerging and to follow. Yeah. Maybe maybe it, you could talk about it in terms of heat, but um, yeah, and invite my clients into a, into a kind of space like that too, where you feel, and it's funny, you talked about something more natural and organic. That's the word. I, I use this word organic. It's like you can feel it in the coaching when, you know, there's an overly rational, theoretical approach to the work. You might be working hard to assess someone's listening uh, or, you know, uh, work out where what stage of development they're coming from or whatever. And, and you're trying to get somewhere through a process. Is when, and when you let go of that, and in, a, in one sense, it's like being in, it's an incredibly human experience. It's a very simple thing. It's like two humans together. Yeah. And on the other hand, there's a deep art to getting out the way and 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 you know refining oneself to sense what's emerging. So, but when it does, it feels very organic. It's like it's not even coming through the mind of the coachee either. You know, like they're not. Th- it's like something starts to emerge. It feels very natural. Yeah. Uh, forgotten why I was. I had a question that I posed you at the start of this whole ramble and. Um, um, yeah, I think it's like, how, how do you apply that to working with individuals? What you shared, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think you've said a lot of it already. And I think that is incredibly important, but the principle of also allowing the client to relate to their own natural rhythm is part of that. And I think sometimes we can be a lot more overt around the conversation that goes, what is your sense of what you need right now? Do you need more heat? Or do you need, do you need disruption? Do you need containment at this point in time? Um, read your own cycle. And let's, let's, let's invite that conversation where it also shifts it from, you know, my sense of needing to sense what you need to, to my role being being to create the, the invitation for you to figure out what you need, which seems so, so simple. But I think when we're deeply entrenched in models and frameworks of how to move things forward, that meta level, so yes, sure, in a coaching approach, we're asking the question so you can find your own solutions. But the meta question around what, is re- what do you really need and to sense deeply into that, I think that's that's part of what we need to what we need to work with. And then another piece, which is just something interesting that I notice from transitioning between group and individual work, is there is a role for the direct challenge. Um, and the direct challenge in the group would be, I see you're playing out the old pattern here and to and to name that in front of the group and to allow the witnessing of the group to be part of the correction that happens 
in the one-on-one coaching situation, especially for coaches who are not um, doing a lot of supervision work where I'm, I'm noticing my stuff in relation to your stuff and, and how I'm colluding with you, um, often there's the, we might let go of our role to also sometimes challenge. And the challenge in that coaching relationship can be directive. It's not always non-directive. It's like, I can really see that you're avoiding this thing again. And we can do this in a lighthearted way, in a serious way. There's so many ways in which we can do it. But sometimes I think we can become so non-directive that we don't realize that we've become afraid to also create a little bit of heat in that one-on-one space by offering a direct observation or a challenge at that meta level. And I think this is more, this is, this is not only true for people that are newer to coaching um, because we can get stuck in that pattern at different stages. But I think it's, it's often early on in coaching where I'm like so in love with this idea of the coaching way that the, the place for a more directive challenge that can create not just heat for the coachee, but for me as well, <laughs> as the person doing that, making, making a more challenging, direct challenging uh, comment, that, that that becomes completely lost in the one-on-one space. I don't know if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense to me. I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking also about there's a certain kind of receptivity uh, you know, in a way, like the, the what I was just describing a moment ago, you know, where you're holding space for someone's unfolding, there's a kind of receptivity there. Mm-hmm. And and it's powerful. And yet, you know, the shadow of that could be that, yeah, certainly it's just completely receptive uh, in the sense that you're going with the flow. And there's a, there's a certain, like, challenge that can be brought in that you're naming that's actually really potent. And I think for me, that's also uh, inviting coaches to trust themselves again, you know, to, to, to bring yourself into the coaching, yeah. you know, don't be afraid to do that. That can often, yeah. And we, and, and so I'm curious what you think about this, because then that brings us back to this question of what's my agenda and am I projecting onto my client, my agenda, you know, for example, the one I mentioned earlier about uh, depth, you know, yeah. I, I, so it, you know, it, it's it's kind of subtle work to to like you said. You know, supervision here is I think really crucial because you know we need someone who can reflect back to us what they're seeing inside of us. It's so difficult to separate out our our agenda with with um, you know skillful challenge and yeah. and I think probably we need to make more mistakes doing that too. Although, you know, so this is, again, it brings in that, that whole dynamic around trauma and, you know, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, of course we don't want to traumatize people. We don't want to project onto people, but I think we have, we have to probably make some mistakes around it too and, mm-hmm. and learn from that, you know, of course, hopefully not harm people. So I, I guess I'm just inquiring and chewing on it as I speak to you about it myself, you know, what yeah. it brings up for you. Yeah, I think that the the gift of supervision is that it helps us see some of the meta patterns. So if my pattern of challenging is always towards depth, to use your example, then that's about me again. So that's the first thing. And then back to the ethics, the ethics of permission. 
And so if I frame in my coaching that part of my methodology is allowing us to unfold together in a deeply resonant space, and I'd like to check how you feel about some more direct challenges, and I'll signal them um, when, when I'm putting that hat on. But it's that kind of contracting that we do that then creates the safety around it, which is very different to an uncontracted poke inside that relationship is the uncontracted poke that's where the potential to traumatize is much higher than oh we've spoken about that this is part of the way we work yeah i'm, I'm thinking of an, an exchange i had with a coach once who you know i i in a group i shared and after i'd shared they just said i i just don't get you and mm. he was trying to challenge me in that moment but I just got triggered, you know, because I just uh, and he even was like, okay, so who who wants to put their hand up and and feels with me they don't get what Joel's saying here, you know? And half the group put their hand. I mean, I just was like this four year old boy in school again, um, as a but I but I I do believe his intention was good. In that moment, yeah. he was trying to challenge something that I was sharing. And I'm thinking of Rich Litvin as someone different who, um, you know, he's quite skillful. He has one of these things around like, okay, do you want, I, I want, I'm going to put this in, I'm going to give you 100% responsibility and I'm going to have 100% responsibility. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I have this thing called fire. He even has it. You know, I've been thinking about it throughout. Our con- and if you want the heat turned up, you know, then you you let me know, yeah, and I'm going to check in about that, and I I might turn the heat up at times too, but I'll check in with you about it as well, and exactly and like that heat when it's brought in that way, it it you can just let it, you can receive it in a completely different way, you know, and it might be disturbing, but you you it's yeah it comes in and it feels it feels um, fulfilling or nourishing, so mm. Mm. yeah, definitely definitely, and so. That's, that's a really beautiful way of thinking about it. It's that contracting around 100, 100% responsibility and my capacity to frame what I'm doing as I'm doing it and checking whether, whether that's helpful. Um, and I think just like to circle back to maybe where we started, this is why I do think it is really helpful to have maps. You know, whether theory you can be a design map in some kind of way Stages theories, adult development theory can be a map. Um, the Enneagram is a map for inner world um, as well in some kind of way. And there's a time and a place for maps that helps me also make sense of what's playing out in the territory. And then thank goodness there's a time to let go of the maps and to, and to crumble them up and pop them in a dustbin, but it's much easier to navigate the territory when there are some maps helping us through that space. Um, For me, I know that it's really important to have the, my, and it's hard because I don't think you can have a map of the mythos, but if I can just name the mythical and animate as a map to to have alongside all these wonderful psychological maps, then um, that will guide us too as we hone our capacity to, to really sense and attune to what's needed in a system. 
And it's easier to hone that sense when I'm doing it in community and with other people and other coaches, which I think is why some of what you're doing to bring what can sometimes be a very lonely profession for people um, into community and into conversation with each other uh, so, that, so that we can attune together and learn together in some of these ways. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's really beautiful. Um, we're nearing the end of our time. Is there anything you want to share that you didn't? I want to ask you in a moment about where we can find out more about your work, but is there anything you want to maybe end with or that you didn't name that you, you would like to? Mm. Um, and maybe only one thing, and this is something that comes from the land-based work and some of my teachers in, in some, of, some of those practices is just this invitation for us as coaches to continuously ask ourselves if we are being hollow little bones so that spirit can move through us. Um, you know, am I being a hollow little bone? Is spirit able to move through me here? Or have I filled up the space with too much theory and too much cleverness and too much of the mind? Uh, that's my continuous practice. Sometimes I'm a good hollow bone. Sometimes I fail at that too. Um, so I'd, I'd offer that as a way to close off. And, and, and for me, pointing to the potency of, of the kind of poetry of that, the hollow bone, you know, and how that, what that evokes in me viscerally right now, you know, it's evocative of a certain experience. So, yeah. Um, Hey, thanks so much. This has been a really brilliant conversation. I really appreciate uh, who you are, Lucille, and what you're bringing into the world. I think it's really important. So, yeah, thanks so much. I'm so happy to share this with people. Thanks, Joel. It was a wonderful, wonderful invitation. Um, and, yeah, it's beautiful to feel how the quality of your listening allows some things that maybe are just swirling inside me in some messy way to also be offered in the space between us. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, and where can we find out more about your work? Uh, so if you want to find out more about what we're doing, um, the website is aphoria, uh, which is a Greek word that means sustainable flourishing, A-E-P-H, aphoria.co.za, not uh, .com. Uh, so it's a global South email addresses or website address as well. So aphoria.co.za, the programs, the supervision, um, that's all there. And there are also some interesting conversations on our YouTube channel. So if you search for Aphoria Partners uh, and the YouTube channel, you can find out more about what we do there. And we'll link to a lot of these things in the show notes on our website too. Great. Thanks, Joel. Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a, a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time.